0: You are listening to Cthonia, the podcast of the Dark Feminine. Cthonia's logo was designed by J.R. Malpair. Background music is Phantasm by Kevin MacLeod. Hello and welcome to Cthonia, the podcast about the Dark Feminine. My name is Breej Burke and this week we are going to talk about Vaishnavi. Uh, Vaishnavi is, again, she's another one of the Matrikas. We've got, I think we're about s- through six of them now. I think there's, uh, two more that we're going to be doing. And Vaishnavi, just as we have talked about the Shaktis of Brahma, which is Brahmi or Brahmani, we talked about the Shakti of Shiva, um, who is, um... Okay, why is my brain suddenly giffing out here? I'm like, I just, I just did this one, uh, Maheshwari. Gosh, I'll tell you. And I, I had three cups of coffee today. I have no excuse for that. Okay, Maheshwari, who is the Shakti of Shiva, and now we're looking at Vaishnavi, who is the Shakti of Vishnu. Okay, um, now Vaishnavi is. Because of her connection to Vishnu, okay, when we we think about the Matrikas, the Matrikas are goddesses that are sort of by definition polluted. You know, they accept uh, flesh and blood sacrifices. Um, Their rites and rituals are not the kind of pure orthodox Brahmanical rituals that we see. Um, So these kind of Shakti who are associated with, um, you know, with these uh, major um, uh, devas, Are very, you know, it's it's kind of their like anything, they're a mixture of auspicious and inauspicious aspects. Now Vaishnavi has to do with pervasiveness, just as Vishnu does. Let me see. Um, and you know, so she's she's very much uh, she you know, she sometimes is referred to in place of Lakshmi or other goddesses like Kamala, as we know, who is the Mahavidya who is, an, is the sort of tantric expression of Lakshmi. However, Vaishnavi is not Lakshmi, okay? Um, she's very different. Again, she is the Shakti of uh, Vishnu. She is not Vishnu's wife, okay? They're not, you know, they're, they're not the same thing, uh, although they're often conflated. Now, okay, now in terms of worship, um, as we've mentioned, a lot of the Matrikas are worshipped as a group, and probably Vaishnavi, in her more fierce form, would be worshipped as part of the Matrika group. Um, but there is a Devi called Vaishno Devi, okay? And she is um, considered to be an auspicious deity. I believe she's, um, if I'm not mistaken, I, I, I could actually be wrong about this, I need to check myself, but I'm not sure if it's her or Varahi, who, who is uh, very prominent in the state of Orissa in India, very popular goddess. Um, and Vaishnavi, okay, I'm going to tell you a little bit of the legend of Vaishnavi. Vaishnavi, the goddess, though, is not the same exactly as Vaishnavi, the mat- Matrīka. I mean, yes, they're they're connected, but um, you know, they're and they have the same name, but they're they're a little bit different in there. In fact, because one, of course, is is you know, an auspicious boon giving goddess, and uh, certainly has some of the qualities of Vaishnavi, but is generally associated um, with more. I guess what you'll call more auspicious qualities, rather than um, than Vaishnavi. Um, okay, <clears throat> so I'm just gonna just read you the very quickly. I'm gonna talk about Devi, but that's not our focus is on the Matrika, not on the Devi. So let's just see. Um, according to Hindu tradition, in the Treta Yuga, when Earth was overburdened by the wicked and tyrannical rule of demons, the goddess Vaishnavi was created. When Gauri, Lakshmi and Saraswati, another version of the um, you know Tridevi. Uh, combine their energies to rid the earth of impending doom. This is actually the story. It's in the Chandipat, uh, the Devi Mahatmayam, and so forth. So we've already been over that. Um, okay, so she is one, again, they mention that she's one of the Matrikas who comes, um, you know, uh, destroying the demons that are burdening the earth. Uh, after, and after destroying them, in this particular version, goddess Vaishnavi was requested to reside on earth that she may forever keep all evil at bay. She chose to incarnate as a human named Vaishnavi. Okay, and it says, As a child, Vaishnavi was immersed in the devotional service of Lord Vishnu, a habit she carried well into her adulthood. When she was of a marriageable age, she left home to perform intense austerities to please and win Lord Vishnu as her husband. Years passed, and as an answer to her prayers, Lord Vishnu appeared to her in the form of Lord Rama. Of course, Rama being an avatar of Vishnu. Um, Vishnu has avatars, by the way, that he appears in, in certain yugas. Um, and when, when he appears, um, you know, there's usually, usually brings about the end of a particular cycle. Um, the very last one's supposed to be when he appears as Kalki. Okay. That's supposed to be his most destructive form. Okay. At the, at the end of, you know, at the real end of the cycle when everything really starts over again. Um, okay. So Vishnu appears to her in the form of Rama. She learned from him that he was already married and was searching for his wife, Sita, who was abducted by the demon king of Lanka, Ravana. Seeing his devotee distraught, Rama promised her that he would return to her one day, and if she recognized him, she could marry him. Rama went on to rescue Sita and become the king of Ayodhya, all while Vaishnavi waited for his return. One such day, she was approached by an old man, who asked the beautiful Vaishnavi to be his wife. She, however, refused his proposal, thinking him undesirable for his age and looks. She had failed to recognize the old man who was none other than Lord Rama, who had come to keep his end of the promise. However, the harsh penance of the goddess can't go unfilled, so Lord Rama granted her boon that in his tenth incarnation of Lord Kalki, during Kali Yuga, which is the one we're in now, he would marry her and ask her to wait for him till his tenth incarnation on the Trikuta Mountain. He even gave her a bow and two quivers of arrows and a troop of his monkey army for her protection." Um, Rama left and Vaishnavi continued to spend years in meditation moving from place to place solving the troubles who all her asked with her siddhis or powers. This threatened the popularity of a local tantric who sent his disciple Nath to find out more about her. But Nath was stupefied by her beauty and lustfully stalked her wherever she went. In order to escape his unwanted attention, Vaishnavi entered a cave and continued her meditation there for nine months as a child rests in its mother's womb. When Baranath discovered her hiding spot and attempted to hunt her down again with an intention of forcing himself on her, Vaishnavi appeared as goddess Mahakali and severed off Baranath's head with her sword. After she cut his head off, he realized his mistake, because yes, cutting off the head removes, removes the ego and the desire, um, realized his mistake and begged her forgiveness. His head had fallen far from his body, but the merciful goddess Vaishnavi promised him that he would be forever enshrined there and he would be her guardian from then on. Vaishno Devi abandoned her rage and returned to the form of Vaishnavi, and re-entered her cave where she assumed the form of three rocks and resides there to date. Uh, each rock supposed to represent Saraswati, Mahalakshmi, and Mahakali. Okay, and this is in fact a, a shrine that still exists to the day. So that's okay. So that's just the um, the Devi story, and uh, there's that connection to Vaishnavi. Now, Vaishnavi, the Matrika, the one who they refer to in the story. Okay. Um, she has she is the power that protects the cosmos and she's also a power of attraction that affects even the gods they say even Shiva is not unaffected by her um, and, and he is somebody who you know he's a deity who's known very much for control um, she is she wears yellow like Vishnu okay she's uh, which which kind of suggests she's a female double of Vishnu rather than Lakshmi she also carries weaponry the same weapons that Vishnu carries and um, in particular, in the Devi Mahatmayam, or in the Chandi, she's actually described as as having her weapon is the discus, which she uses to sever the heads of um, you know of uh, the forces, that the enemy forces, um, and she rides on Garuda, okay, which is also the same vehicle as Vishnu. Garuda being um, Garuda is a bird like creature, but he's most like a golden eagle, okay. So you can think of the eagle as being the, uh, the sort of the Mount of Vishnu, and also this is the Mount of Vaishnavi. Okay. Um, now, in um, the, and again, she's not explicitly mentioned in the Vedic text. There is that Vaishnav Devi story, which is a little separate, but the idea of the Matrika, she's not explicitly mentioned. She is mentioned in the Chandipat, and I will talk about that in a second. Um, but going back to the Ferocious book, um, they mention her relationship to a goddess called Mohini, which is a female form of Vishnu. Um, okay, uh, I'll read this. This is from page one ninety-seven of Ferocious um, by you know put out by Theon Press. Um, there is a good reason to see a strong connection, or maybe even foreshadowing, of Vaishnavi. In the female Mohini avatar of Vishnu, okay, so this is another avatar of Vishnu, is Mohini. In the Vaishnava tradition, when Vishnu manifests as Mohini, she or he becomes the ultimate woman, capable of enchanting even powerful gods like Shiva who are unable to resist her and are utterly spellbound by her beauty or to her beauty. Yet Mohini is never confused with Lakshmi, not in any of the traditional texts, and at least to the best of our knowledge. So then if Vishnu as woman is Mohini and Vishnu as woman is also Vaishnavi, then Mohini and Vaishnavi must share many of the same attributes even if they are not directly connected in text. This suggests that Vaishnavi should be seen not only as the manifestation of the power that protects the cosmos, but also as the power of attraction, okay? against which there is no defense for mortals and immortals alike. Um, the reader may be aware of the tantric aspect of Lakshmi called Kamala. Yes, we, we've talked about her. Um, <clears throat> As Vaishnavi is a Tantric goddess, it would be reasonable to expect that Vaishnavi would resemble her, but that's not the case. Kamala does not look anything like Vaishnavi, and we're going to talk about her iconography in a minute. Um, So, uh, because Kamala's, uh, um, excuse me, Kamala's um, animal is the elephant. She's usually pertained with elephants. And to a certain extent, Vaishnavi does have some connection to elephants, but she's mainly associated with Garuda, with the the bird, Um, with the um, king of the birds, really um so okay so her iconography i'm i think i'm going to also read this from ferocious only because it's more complete than other versions that i've seen um says vaishnavi has four arms two of which bear the conch and the discus the others making the fearlessness and boon giving gestures she wears a conical crown. The text states that she has a beautiful face and prominent breasts, while her complexion is dark, like a blue color, and she wears a yellow garment while her vehicle is the king of birds, Garuda, who also appears on her banner. In the tradition of the, the Vishnu Dharmotara, Vaishnavi has six hands. The right hand bears the mace lotus and gesture of fearlessness, and the left hands have a conch discus and gesture of boon giving. Um, in both the uh, Purva Karan- Karanagama and the Devi Purana, Vaishnavi is described with four hands, which bear a conch, discus, mace, and lotus, and she wears Vishnu's signature garland of flowers. In the Devi Mahatmaya, she is seated on the king of birds, Garuda, holding a conch, discus, mace, bow, and sword, without description of what the sixth hand holds or whether it makes a mudra. Um, yet in the 11th chapter of the Devi Mahatmaya, Vaishnavi appears with four weapons, conch, discus, club, and sa- saranga, or a parakeet. So perhaps her two hands, form mudras, or else she only has four hands. Um, The tradition of the Rupa Mananda describes Vaishnavi as having four arms, three of which bear the conch, discus, and a mace, while one is in fearlessness gesture. Finally, the description of Vaishnavi in the Silparatna um, is distinctive in that she is described with the conch shell, discus, banner, and a chain. Okay, so yeah, she definitely is a lot more like... um, uh, Vishnu himself rather than by Lakshmi. Um, now the, uh, what I want to talk about, again, because there is no explicit legends other than the one I just uh, told you, associated with Vaishnavi, certainly Vaishnavi the Matrika. Um, and again, this is not necessarily uncommon. Um, there are some Matrikas that have um, other legends associated with them uh, that that um, we can you know like full stories full mythological stories that we can read um most of the shaktis are just considered to be um the power of the devas themselves um which is you know which, which is how um you know which you know yeah. which again to me that's one of the um great truths that we see in hinduism is just the idea of this this um this sort of feminine conscious vital energy That pervades everything and you know not only uh, animates and provides us as humans in our consciousness but also um does the same for um for the gods as well now um i want to talk about okay there's a few things i want to talk about with uh, relationship to vaishnavi first of all uh we talk about garuda her the eagle a little bit the that association of this bird-like eagle-like creature that is her um, that is associated with her and with vishnu um, we talk about her in the Chandipat. Uh Now, in the Chandiput she is described as the energy of the consciousness that pervades all. So, and she cuts off the heads of demons with a discus, okay? And I want to talk about not only the idea of pervasiveness, but also about the discus itself and its meaning. Because um, it's, re- it's um, related to something called the Sudashana Chakra, um, which is uh, like a disc-like weapon. Uh, that's associated with Vishnu or at least one particular version of Vishnu um so we'll talk about that a little bit and okay as they always personify a vice the vice that she personifies is greed so we want to talk about that as well so okay so we have this goddess and the fact that she has to do with pervasiveness generally has to do with um you know because if Vishnu is about preserving, then this is about preserving the cosmic order. So in other words, she's going to be a goddess that's going to be angered when the the order of things is thrown into chaos. Okay, that's when she's going. That's when her energy is going to become activated, because she has a protective, and um, you know, and, and pervasive. You know, she, she's about maintaining um, things that are good. Now, if I want to start by talking about the idea of greed. Um, as being associated with her as a matrica. Um, It makes sense if you think about it, because if her if her role is to preserve, okay, so what is greed? Greed is usually hanging on to what you have. It's like the miser who amasses wealth and won't share it with anyone. Um, if you're familiar with Tarot with the Four of Pentacles card, you see the, the man sitting there in, in the traditional kind of rider weight version where they're sitting there clutching the pentacle to their chest and oftentimes you know sharing is actually what allows you to increase abundance but for people who are greedy it's just kind of like no I just have to have it all for myself and I'm not going to share it with anybody else whether it's because of a fear of lack of abundance or whether it's just that people get intoxicated with having all this and then they just want more which does happen a lot you will have people who say they're satisfied with you know you know, oh, you know, I'll be satisfied with just this much or just that much. But then if they actually achieve that, then it's kind of like, well, maybe that's not enough. So people always seem to want more. Um, so, OK, so we have this idea of, um, you know, that that sort of greed out of balance. I mean, well, um, the idea of preservation, I should say, out of balance is greed. So that is why it's associated with her. And just as... Um, you know, she can be the provoked energy of greed, um, Vaishnavi can also be, you know, just in working with that energy, Vaishnavi can also have to do with overcoming greed and, and, you know, maintaining satisfaction with what you have, so she, you know, again, it, you know, it's, you can, you can look at the, these, these sort of, uh, vices or ethical negatives and say, okay, um, and they become, and they do become a problem to us because um, they they not only affect you, but affect the you know your relationship to everything around you in a in a harmful sense. So you know these goddesses, you know they're they they can represent what happens when it gets out of balance, but also help you to get back in balance. Okay, uh, sometimes there needs to be a confronting of the negative energy in order to um, to correct something. Uh, this I think is kind of one of the um rationale, I, I guess part of the rationale behind um, Goetic practice in, in a, not in the not in the archaic sense necessarily, or maybe in the archaic sense, but certainly in the um, Solomonic traditions, um, the idea that you are, when you invoke a demon for something, um, that demon generally represents something that's either a vice or a weakness of yours. And in working with that demon in theory, what you could potentially do is overcome that weakness okay that's that's one possible rationale for working within goetic practice um you know you know whatever it is that you're you know because generally when you're invoking something for that purpose it's because you're basically saying i don't have this or i lack this um i think i go back to sort of my mind to lon milo duquette's story about um when he invoked the demon Orobas to um bring dignity to him because he didn't feel like he had like he was being a proper father and supporter um, he has that story in his book low magic which i highly recommend it's a really excellent book i believe the full title is low magic it's all in your head but your head is bigger than you think it is something to that effect um so i, I always recommend it's, it's actually an easy read i think the first time i read it i read it in an afternoon but the the stories in there are wonderful and they wonderfully illustrate the way in which one uses these kinds of shadowy beings to um, you know, to regain that balance or to, to put, put oneself back into your own power, put yourself back into your center. So anyway, just, um, sort of mentioning that as a side note, but but this isn't the way in which the Matrikas, you know, in which you can use their, those, those vices, if you will, to, um, uh, to, to, you know, to gain control of the vices, I suppose, is a way to put it. Um, also going to mention real quickly before I get into the other aspects, um, Excuse me, a moment. Uh, Vaishnavi rules over the graha uh, or the planet um, Buddha, which or Mercury. Now, don't, not to confuse Buddha, B-U-D-H-A, with uh, the, the um, with the enlightened being of Buddhism. Um, Buddha is just the Sanskrit name for the planet Mercury. And just as we associate Mercury or Hermaeus in um, Greek and Roman uh, mythology with communications, commerce, technology, and all these things, similarly, the, um, Mercury, the planet, uh, this planet is also associated with these things in the Vedic system, and therefore Vaishnavi is sort of um, the uh, spirit or deity that one might appeal to. Um, when one needs to communicate something clearly or negotiate or build a business or something like that, you know, Vaishnavi, um, it also um, kind of, I I don't want to say rules over, but she's certainly a deity with, with powers related to that. Okay. But first and foremost, she's a goddess of protection. Um, And she will generally intervene during a crisis. Um, There's also noted that she's related to water, you know, because of her blue skin and also air because her mount is a bird. Um, and also to sexuality, because she's often portrayed as having a very curvaceous and beautiful figure. Okay. So, all right, so let's go back and talk about um let's talk about Garuda. Now, um <clears throat> it's a uh okay, I'm just gonna read a little bit. Some of these I'm just taking straight from Wikipedia. If the Wikipedia entry is actually helpful, sometimes it's not, and so I skip over that and we'll go find some other sites on um, you know, tree vidya traditions or something else that will help me, um, you know, come up with a a, a sort of comprehensive explanation. Um, but I believe this one does come from Wikipedia. So, um, okay, it's a legendary bird or bird-like creature in Hindu, Buddhist, and Jainist mythology. Uh, he is variously the vehicle or mount of, uh, which is a vahana, of a Hindu god Vishnu, a dharma protector, and astasena in Buddhism, and the yaksha of the Jain... Um, uh, uh, tirtankara uh, shantinata so uh, so Garuda appears in a lot of the Eastern mythologies uh, Garuda is described as king of the birds and a kite-like figure he is shown either in zoomorphic form a giant bird with partially open wings or in anthropomorphic form a man with wings and some bird features Garuda is generally a protector with power to swift to swiftly go anywhere ever watchful, and an enemy of the serpent. Okay, yes, um, he's uh, continually, um, the, the mythologies of Garuda have him continually fighting with the Nagas, which are the serpents. Okay, he's also known as Tarkshaya and uh, Yanateya. Okay, so, um, okay, his links to Vishnu, the Hindu god who fights injustice and destroys evil in his various avatars to preserve Dharma. Okay, so that's it, to preserve balance and, and you know the roles of, of people in the world. it has made him an iconic symbol of king's duty and power and we notice too also that the eagle just as my aside you know like for example that is the um, uh, the sacred animal if you will of Zeus or Jupiter. Um, eagles are generally associated with royalty it's, that seems to be I, I don't want to go again I don't like to use the word universal but that does seem to be the common case uh, in a lot of cultures. In fact, in America, the idea of American supremacy and everything, uh, you know, you know, as, as questionable as that may be at this moment, um, the you know often is symbol symbolized by the eagle. And uh, I don't know, just as an aside, I have a cartoon in my office. Uh, I haven't been back to my office in months yet now, but um, I have a, where the um, there's two eagles talking to each other, and one says to the other, "He says, yeah, when I'm abroad, I just tell everybody I'm a Canada goose.' <laughs> it was a New Yorker cartoon. It actually cracks me up because it's like, yeah um but anyway eagles are generally symbols of sovereignty um it makes him an iconic symbol of king's duty and power insignia of royalty or dharma his eagle-like form is shown either alone or with vishnu signifying divine approval of the power of the state so yeah again that kind of fits in with the idea of say a god like zeus as the um is one overseeing or maintaining decay or divine justice okay making sure that the universe stays in balance, not um, you know, not, not thrown into total um, imbalance or chaos. He is found on the faces of many early Hindu kingdom coins with this symbolism, either as a single-headed bird or a three-headed bird that watches all sides. Um, throughout the Mahabharata, Garuda is invoked, invoked as a symbol of impetuous violent force, of speed and of martial prowess. Powerful warriors advancing rapidly on doomed foes are likened to Garuda swooping down on a serpent. By the way, that is an omen that appears in the Iliad as well, that when they see, um, uh, and now I'm not going to remember exactly where it is. I kind of wish I'd thought of this before I started recording, but in the Iliad, there is a section where um, where that, that omen actually appears, where, a, um, where an eagle swoops down and grabs a serpent. And I can't remember which side this was considered to be an omen for because I'm, I'm not remembering off the top of my head uh, whether or not that was associated more, whether that was a bad omen for the Greeks or the Trojans, I guess is what I'm trying to say, or the, I should say the Achaeans and the Trojans. So, um, But but one of the sides looked at that and said, oh, that's not good. Um, but the idea of an eagle um, grabbing a serpent um that's interesting because again this, the serpent tends to be um associated with life it has to do with the renewal of life uh the the nagas in uh, Hinduism are not considered to be negative but they tend to represent the the eternal cycling of things so the fact that the eagle is their enemy i mean it might have to do with the um that aspect of the snake that can be uh tricksterish i guess you could say um, when they th- we talk about somebody as being snake-like or um, slithery or, or slippery. Um, it may have to do with that aspect because these these are the ways that people um, find loopholes, find ways around um, the the usual rules. So it, it may be that Garuda um, as a defender of um, of the order and the Dharma may, uh, may be an enemy of that aspect of the serpent. Um, okay, back to this. Defeated warriors are Garuda. Um, um, okay, I think the the grammar in this is poor. Um, uh, Garuda is presented in Mahabharata mythology as the one who eats snake meat, such as the story about him planning to kill and eat Samuka snake, where in which Indra in- intervenes. Garuda, in anger. Um, you know vaunts about his feats and compares himself to indra's equal vishnu teaches a lesson to garuda and cured his pride and on might see okay and there's there's this idea of um well it's not that's great garuda has to deal with uh, with pride garudas are also a race of birds who devour snakes in the epic okay so okay so we have this this um this bird of royalty that is the mount and you have the idea of this bird that devours the serpent Um, so that's that's kind of an interesting thing to contemplate i mean i've kind of given one possible interpretation of that there are probably others um, because the snake is a is a very powerful potent and complex symbol generally though in hindu mythology um, serpents are not considered to be negative okay Um, they're considered to be boon givers and, and very positive so, um, but again, you know, they may. Um, th- th- there's certain aspects of them. In fact, there is one story um, that I recall of Garuda, where um, he steals the nectar of immortality, um, and you know, but he, but uh, he's been told not to give it to the Nagas by Vishnu, so, um, you know, not not to make the snakes immortal, and certainly. Um, if the snakes represent that cycle of birth and death to some degree, um, then, you know, or if they represent, you know, if we think about them as being the Kundalini or as being what activates our, um, our consciousness, then obviously that is something that for mortals is certainly is finite. Okay. Um, it, it you know, well, finite in a way, I mean, our, our bodies are finite and in those mythologies, you know, there's re- there's continual rebirth until you get off the cycle. So, um, you know and that may actually be part of it too because it may be like okay the cycles have to go through and go through until they start over again um or until the individual um consciousness uh rejoins the the adi parashakti or the um the Param, um, paramatman the the absolute you know the the group soul um that is uh beyond birth and rebirth so you know so serpents belong to the field of time, I guess, is what I'm saying. So therefore, they should not be given any kind of immortality. And um, I would think that a eagle that eats snakes um, is is you know or tries to devour the snake is you know that that has to do with devouring time. Okay, devouring um, <clears throat> that uh, you know um, you know th- th- there's the idea of you know that. Um, i'm not i'm I'm kind of struggling for words here um it's not the the eagle is you know there's there's this sense of um sort of reasserting control if you will over you know over time and over the process and um over any attempt to step outside of dharma or outside of role okay so okay so we see this as her as the, the Mount of Vaishnavi, as well as the Mount of Vishnu. So um, we see this this eagle as, as having this preserving role. Now, what's a little more, perhaps a little more um, significant and interesting is the, the battling with the discus, okay? Um, and as I mentioned in Chandishi, the energy of the consciousness that pervades all, that pervasiveness, okay? So there's this idea that... Um, yeah, she's she's kind of the the energy of that um, the persistence of consciousness in everything. Okay, so that makes her almost a little bit like um, Bhuvaneshwiti in a way, which is the pervasive consciousness in nature. Um, Vaishnavi seems to be a shakti that has to do with that um, that that uh, the idea of everything having a consciousness or being being conscious in some form, um, being connected to that preserving of that life and preserving of life okay and when she uses the discus it's kind of like okay why would you use a discus if we think about using a discus it's like a round obviously a round object um and you say what, what would what would you use that as a weapon i mean we might think of example of like the throwing stars that a ninja would use or something like that um but you know the idea of using it as a as a weapon in this fashion is is somewhat interesting now, Vishnu does have a discus that he uses as a weapon. Um, so let me, let me talk a little bit about this, because this, um, you know, because in Chandi, in one of the few places where, um, uh, you know, Vaishnavi appears um, and is actually named uh, she is she has shown attacking demons with her discus. So this makes her different from a goddess say like Brahmi, Brahmi or Brahmini, who um, who won't shed blood. She just pours water on her enemies. Um, the The preservation goddess in, in an effort to preserve, you know she she will get her hands dirty, she will she will get violent and she will shed blood. Um, so here's here's a little bit about um, the Sudarshana chakra which is actually the special discus of Lord Vishnu. Um, And it's almost... um, Okay, so the legendary discus of Lord Vishnu was given to him by Vishvakarman, who was the architect of the gods, or Lord Shiva. The most powerful weapon in Hindu mythology, according to Vaishnava traditions, infallible, flies at the command of Lord Vishnu. It could be be stopped only by Lord Vishnu's wish. However, Lord Shiva also stopped it when Krishna Krishna used it on Banasura. It has tremendous occult and spiritual power that could protect or destroy anything. It was used by Krishna, Vishnu's eighth avatar, to behead his cousin, uh, Shishupala. Okay, now the Sudarshana uh, chakra, which well, this is the actual discus, is a spinning disc-like weapon, literally meaning disc of auspicious vision, having 108 serrated edges used by the Hindu god Vishnu. The Sudashana chakra is generally portrayed on the right rear hand of the four hands of Vishnu, who also holds a shanka or a conch shell, a gada, which is a mace and a padma and a lotus, which is a lotus. While in the Rig Veda, the chakra was Vishnu's symbol as the wheel of time. Okay. That's the other thing too. The discus is the wheel of time. Um, by the late period, Sudarshana chakra uh, emerged as, um, a- as an, amp- uh, the, yeah, Sudhashara, I'm sorry, let me get this right. Surashana Chakra emerged as an anthropomorphic form, as a fierce form of Vishnu. So this is almost like um, the, 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 there's a particular figure of Vishnu that's very fierce, an avatar that's very fierce, that, that where this discus is prominently used, this discus. And the discus has a wheel on it, like the wheel of time, used for the destruction of the energy. The Sudashana Chakra was given to Lord Vishnu by the Adi, Adi Shakti. Okay. That's interesting. The Adi Shakti, which is the supreme primal consciousness, okay, um, hands him the wheel of time as a weapon. Hmm. Very interesting, right? Now, let's see. Um, Okay, a little bit more on the idea of this as a weapon. Uh, Vishnu in the form of this chakra was held as the ideal of worship for kings desirous of obtaining universal sovereignty, a concept associated with the Bhagavata cult in the Puranas, a religious condition traceable to the Gupta period, which also led to the Chakravartin concept. The concept of universal sovereignty possibly facilitated the syncretism of Krishna and Vishnu and reciprocally reinforced their military power and heroic exploits. Um, with the Kshatriya hero Krishna preserving order in the phenomenal world, while composite Vishnu is the creator and upholder of the universe supporting all existence. Um, uh, Begley, it mentions, I'm not sure, um, I don't have the citation there, but um, notes the evolution of the anthropomorphic iconography of Sudarshana, beginning from early expansion of the uh, Bhagavata sect thus, in contrast to the relatively simple religious function of the chakra purusha, the, iconogra- uh, the iconographic role of the medieval uh, Sudashana purusha of South India was exceedingly complex. The medieval uh, Sudarsana was conceived as a terrifying deity of destruction. Okay, so this is the deity associated with this, this discus or wheel. For, who worship, uh, who's, for whose worship special tantric rituals were devised. The iconographic conception of Sudarshana as an esoteric agent of destruction constitutes a reassertion of the original militaristic connotation of the the chakra. chakra. Um, An early scriptural reference in obtaining the grace of Sudarshana through building a temple for him can be found um, in the um, Arbudayana uh, Samhita, in the story of uh, Kushadvaja, king of the uh, Janakas. Who felt possessed by the devil, causing him to, uh, causing him various ills due to a sin from a past life and killing a righteous king? His guru advised him to build the temple. Following which, he performed propitiatory rites for ten days. Upon which he is cured. However, the multi-armed Sudarshana, as a horrific figure with numerous weapons standing on a flaming wheel, comes from southern Indian iconography. With the earliest example of the southern Indian, south Indian Sudarshana image being a small eight-arm eight-armed bronze image from the 13th century. Okay, so. So think, okay, so now when we think about the discus, okay, in addition to the idea, okay, so we have this discus with the serrated edges, you know, supposedly 108. 108 is the um, Ashotara st- um, uh, Stotra um, recitation, you know, which means 108. And that's actually very common. Most gods have an Ashotara uh, Stotra or Namavali where you recite um, different names, you know, 108 times you either recite the same names 108 times or a mantra 108 times, or you do, um, you know, or you recite different names, 108 different names. And, um, and this particular, so, so 108 is very sacred number in Hinduism. Um, and the fact that this seems to be connected with time. Okay. So that would be the wheel, like the wheel of samsara. Okay. Um, which is the wheel of birth and death on which we, um, which we are a part of, and it also would have to do with the cycle of yugas, which are the various time periods um, where it, it, you you might almost liken it to Hesiod or Ovid's uh, state, you know, Ages of Man, um, where you know you have uh, something that's the equivalent of say a golden age, where everything you know everything is wonderful and gods and humans live together and everybody does what they're supposed to do, and then gradually through the different yugas things become more and more corrupted and they fall apart. And then by the time you get to, in Hinduism, to Kali Yuga, which is the most materialistic and the most chaotic, which is the one we're in now, um, that's considered to be sort of the final Yuga. But unlike Western uh, eschatology, which basically talks about a quote-unquote end of the world, okay, you see the kind of stuff from like the Book of Revelation or from others where the world's finally going to end, in Hindu mythology, At the end of Kali Yuga, um, even though there's destruction, everything doesn't end. It starts again with a new golden age. Okay, so it's a continually, the yugas perpetually go on. um, And that's like the idea, again, of uh, Vishnu dreaming a universe. You know, lotus opens from his navel. Brahma creates a universe. Then that Brahma dies. The lotus closes. And then Vishnu, you know, wakes up, has another dream. You know, So there's this constant um, cycling of universes almost endlessly. So this is a very different concept from our very um, very linear and very finite idea of, of time. Of There's a past, present, and future, and everything's going to come to an end and just drop off. Uh, that's not the way Hindu um, thinking is. That's why you have the idea of reincarnation. You're not just born once, you're born again and again and again. Um, depending And depending on what you may have been lacking in one lifetime or another, you might come back in another lifetime to... Um, either deal with or rectify or rebalance, you know, whatever it is that you might have been missing in another lifetime until you reach a point where you um, get off the wheel and you no longer need to be reborn. And in which case, yes, you, you become absorbed in the Paramatman. Uh, you don't have an individual existence anymore, but it's said that, that getting off the wheel is, is a state of pure bliss. So, um, you know, so there's this, you know, it, so it's a little bit different we have a different idea. It's not like when you die in Western thinking, it's like, okay, you go to heaven or you go to hell, or even necessarily the concept of going to Hades or, or a similar underworld. Um, I think in the next episode, I want to talk a little bit about the Hindu concept of the underworld and the different underworlds. But it is not the same. And the idea of going to heaven, the gods live in he- the, what they consider to be heaven or, or various heavens. But they are not. Um, but that's not. That's not your final resting place at death, unless you're reborn as a as a deva or devi. Okay, uh, that's not. It's not. That's not. That's not the final goal. It's actually better to be a human, where you actually have a chance uh, of meeting, say, a Satguru who will help you get off the wheel. Okay, that's that's your best chance of liberation. Is is being uh, alive as a, as a as a mortal human being, because but uh, because if you're alive as a god, you know god, you know they're. They're not, I guess they're not, they're immortal and they're not at the same time. Um, You know, they they can be reborn in different forms and uh, they, you know, and obviously they would have a lifespan far longer than than humans do, but they, you know, but they reach a point where they're, you know, the gods also can disappear. Um, And probably, at least in terms of personal religious experience, at some point they probably should, um, if you, if you're getting closer to that. To that point of liberation um so okay so vaishnavi with her discus you can say you can probably assume that this is the same discus so the idea is that she is destroying um the demons of thoughts with with basically it's with you know almost literally with the idea of death like the discus is almost literally a representation of uh the finiteness of things because there's a wheel you know it, it at some point that um you know in that cycle uh some at some point that cycle ends so to um have your head cut off with the discus um is to basically um you know it's basically like you're being you know you're 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 being stung into uh awareness by an awareness of time okay so that seems to be what this you know what the at least one of the representations there there may be others Um, People who might be um, a little more familiar with that, you know, certainly anybody can is free to jump in and comment and say, "Hey, it's also this," or "I also heard it's that." But that seems to be the. I feels like that seems to be the main thing that this is the wheel of time, and if Vaishnavi's role is to be as a preserver and a protector, um, and then and that she's going to be attacking these sort of, um, you know, these demonic entities that are really kind of like thoughts out of control. Uh, what she's doing is she's, you know, uh, bringing, you know, th- this is the idea of, it could also be the idea of fortune or destiny. If we think of, say, the Wheel of Fortune card in the tarot, there's this idea of um, what you have control of and what you don't have control of. What's what's in the universe beyond your control? A lot of times we like to think we have more control over things than what we do. So this may be a representation of uh, that loss of control or, the, you know, needing to relinquish that control. Um, and and just put yourself in the center of the wheel instead of, um, you know, getting caught on the edges of it, getting caught on those serrated edges. So so I think that's all I'm going to say about Vaishnavi. Um, we have two more to go. We have uh, Varahi and uh, Narasimi, and um, both of them are goddesses who have uh, animal heads, so they're going to be a little different from, from the others that we've encountered thus far. But they are, and Varahi, there has has a whole cult and following and and a a very big tantric tradition associated with her. So that's going to be, I have quite a bit to discuss there. Um, And then when we discuss Narasimi, that will be the end of the Matrika discussion. So, um, okay. So that's going to be it for me for this week. Um, Again, I'll just, you know, encourage you to sign on to my social media. If you're following me on YouTube, please um, subscribe. Uh, push the bell notification so that you see when I have new um, podcast videos coming out uh, and on YouTube of course it's Cthonia. If you are uh, on other social media I'm Cthonia Podcast so it's uh, two words on Twitter and Instagram uh, sorry two words on Facebook one word on Twitter and Instagram. I also have patreon.com slash and I also encourage you to visit Cthonia.net which is where I have a link to where you can hear all the podcasts if you've missed anything. Um, if you're not, a, if you haven't subscribed on iTunes or, or one of these, you know, you can, and you just want to listen to it straight up on your computer, uh, you, there is a link there. And, um, you know, and also to some of my publications and writings, which are connected to this and and other things that, uh, that I offer. Um, I also have a connection to my related services at liminalreiki.com, um, where I uh, provide services that um, basically, I mean, my, my main goal is to sort of help people through transitions with using the tools that I have. but uh, you know, anybody really can get, you know, anybody can get involved in those services. It's not It's not just for, just for people like that, but um, I, I, I especially, tend to work with people who have those kinds of issues. And I do have a testimonials page on liminalreiki.com so you can see what people what people's experiences are if you're saying, well, you know, yeah, how how good are you at this? Then, you know, you can see what other people's opinions are. Um because I copy them they're they're copied in directly from a feedback form, uh, with no editing. So that's it for me. And um wanna say thanks again to my patrons. Thank you to all of you for listening. And um, I'll be back in the next episode.